Look with me, please. Philippians chapter 2. And we'll begin a reading in verse 1 and read through verse 11 this morning. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. I want to stop here for just a moment because I want you to notice before every statement that Paul makes, there is this, in this case, an actual conjunction, if... And he noticed, he said, if there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. He then goes on to say, verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to stand to proclaim your word this morning. We pray that we might have receptive hearts. May your spirit use your truth in each and every one of our hearts and lives. Continue to conform us to the image of Christ. Continue to transform us by the power of your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. After concluding our study through Philippians chapter 1 several weeks ago, we spent the following three weeks examining Paul's statement in verse 29. So we actually, if you recall, concluded the entirety of the chapter, but then revisited specifically verse 29 and verse 30, but more so verse 29, in which Paul said, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. And throughout the study of Paul's statement concerning suffering, I explained that suffering for the cause of Christ is clearly linked to the theme of this chapter, of chapter 1 that is, concerning first the fellowship of the gospel in verses 3 through 11, the furtherance of the gospel in verses 12 through 26, and the faith of the gospel verses 27 through 30. And each of those are mentioned in this fashion, the furtherance or the fellowship of the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel, and the faith of the gospel. Each of these are found within these passages that I've referenced. And in an effort to understand the significance of Paul's declaration in chapter 1, verse 29, when he stated that it is granted or it is given unto you to not, to not only believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. We considered Paul's explanation of suffering from his writing in chapter 8 of Romans. And I asked and then answered three questions concerning suffering, which I just want to review quickly and then we're moving on. First, why does suffering exist? Because he says, given unto you. Now he's talking about suffering for the cause of Christ, not for your wrongdoing, not because of sin, but because of Christ, for righteousness' sake. And Romans 8, 20 through 22, Paul wrote, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. This confidence, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. So we're seeing in these verses, as Paul explained clearly as well, of course, in chapter 3 of Romans, that the, 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 the world is under this curse of sin. There is original sin. The sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden introduced sin into the world. But then there's also what is referred to as actual sins. And these are the sins which men personally commit as descendants of Adam. So we all have a sinful nature inherited by Adam, and therefore we all sin because we are sinful in nature. And so there is original sin, the Garden of Eden, and there are actual sins uh, that which we commit. And so suffering is a result of that. And again, even when you look at if and when we suffer for the cause of Christ, if and when we suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ, it is still a result of sin. Meaning, the world that dwells and lives in sins in sin hates righteousness, hates God, and therefore wants to rid itself of any remembrance of righteousness or God or truth. And therefore, those who follow righteousness suffer at the hand of the world, the worldly system, because they are sinful. Not that we don't commit sin also, but because of the sinfulness which they dwell in and the kingdom of darkness in which they dwell that wants to eradicate any presence of light whatsoever. Then we ask the question, what is the purpose of suffering? Romans 8.18, Paul said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And so God works through suffering first. We saw to reveal his glory. Paul stated, glory which shall be revealed in us. And also, the future glory which God is working is far greater than the present suffering. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 we read, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So Paul says, we're not focused in on the things that are temporal. We are looking to that which is eternal, which is not seen. It's by faith, believing the word of God, believing what God has stated. We rest and trust completely in Christ and in his sufficiency. And so we know that all things that are unfolding, all of the, the trouble, all of the, of the uh, persecution, all of the opposition, all of the difficulty, all of the suffering that is a result of following after Christ, we know that God is working a, an eternal weight of glory which exceeds that which we can comprehend or understand at this present time, but yet still trusting and resting in that truth. So God is using this suffering for the cause of Christ unto his glory. And then third, the question I ask is, how does God use this suffering then? In Romans 8, that's the purpose. How does God use it? Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And let me mention, these are not just random verses picked out of Romans. We looked at all this text of Romans chapter 8 in reviewing are asking these questions. And all of these verses, which I've quoted 2 Corinthians, of course, is one we referenced as well. But these verses in Romans are, are within that same text that we were examining in chapter 8 concerning this matter of suffering of which Paul spoke. So we saw from Romans 8, 28, or really 26 through 30, that first of all, God demonstrates his provision for us in suffering. Romans 8, 26 and 27, we see that to be true. God reveals his providential work through suffering. Romans 8, 28, which we just read. And God performs through suffering, Romans 8, 29 through 30, because God is working that purpose uh, 
we know that God is working all things to conform us to the image of His Son, and He has called us into this love and into this purpose. And therefore, those whom He called, uh, we know He's justified. Those He justifies, He glorified. And so we understand that God is perfecting His purpose through even suffering itself as we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And so I concluded from Paul's teaching in both Philippians and Romans that suffering is good in this matter, in this manner, and that it first drives us to depend upon our Lord Jesus Christ and his strength. Look at the life of the Apostle Paul. When he suffered, he was driven to the sufficiency of Jesus. It, second, draws genuine believers together in the purity of fellowship. The church never prospered more greatly than in persecution, than in suffering for the cause of Christ. Third, it delivers us from having a worldly attitude and view of this life. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians, we look not to the things which are temporal, but to that which is eternal. And when we are suffering, it causes us to reconsider all things that we think of concerning life and begin to, as those who know Christ, to have an eternal perspective, even longing for an eternity, not only where suffering no longer exists, but the reason for suffering doesn't exist, and that is sin. Fourth, it demonstrates that we have identified in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul had said in Romans 8 that we will be glorified with him. We will experience his glory if we suffer with him. So the identity that we have in Christ is not one where one... Today, let me, let me pause for a moment, because today there is this predominant thought and idea that within so-called Christianity in America, it's not Christianity at all, but that we can just glean from God all the good of... From Christ in the sense of all these blessings and just reap, up, re, reap unto us all of these blessings, not spiritual blessings. Now we're talking about physical things, right? This physical perspective, which Paul denounces in 2 Corinthians. But yet this idea that God's going to just bless us with all this monetary prosperity and physical blessings, and yet we should never have to suffer because we're blessed of God. But we must understand that to know Christ is to know him. Again, Philippians 3.10, we'll get there eventually. But Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So Paul is saying, I want to know Christ in every possible way to know him. But it's not just Paul desired this. Paul recognized that's the only way he would never know Christ. It's to know him in resurrection power, meaning he had died and been risen in Christ spiritually and one day physically. To know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, that if he was going to know Christ, he must know the sufferings of Christ and be identified in them. And to know him in his death, to die humbly as in submission to God the Father, and that he might therefore uh, experience the resurrection life of Christ within him. And so we see that, that we identify the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and God often uses sufferings uh, for the cause of Christ as a means for us to recognize and understand the necessity for us to identify with him in such a manner. So this morning our study moves us into the second chapter, as we've read this morning, 11 verses of this second chapter of Paul's epistle to these Philippian believers. And this chapter includes what is referred to as the Carmen Christi, which means hymn of Christ or hymn to Christ. It's also referred to as that. And within this hymn, we find it is Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, that Paul speaks of the humility of our Lord, the exaltation of Jesus Christ through after his sufferings and death and his resurrection. So Paul magnifies in this hymn of Christ, or hymn to Christ, the humility, the submission, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, which resulted in his 
exaltation by God the Father, as stated in verses 6 through 9. So let's go back to verses 5 through 9. And we're not even going to really be dealing with these this morning, but let's go back and look at this Carmen Christi. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. And then he goes on to explain how the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But before we begin our study of this portion of the text, even which we just read, we will examine Paul's exhortation to the believers in Philippi in these first verses to follow that same humility and sacrificial way Jesus submitted himself to the Heavenly Father, as demonstrated within verses 5 through 9. The actual exhortation is summarized in verse 5, and that's why I wanted to go ahead, get ahead a little bit, because when Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, he is now summarizing in this one statement all the previous truths in ver- the previous verses, which we are going to begin to look into this morning. And then he explains that mind as Christ exemplified that as he lived his life humbly submitting himself though he was God in the flesh yet humbly submitting himself and and becoming even lower than the angels as a man in the form and likeness of sinful flesh and then humbly dying as God's sacrifice and substitutionary atonement on our behalf that God might ultimately exalt him and so Paul here is saying, let this mind be in you. So let's go back to the basis of this exhortation, because here's the exhortation and the summarization of it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what is the basis of this exhortation? Go back to verse 1. If there be any consolation in Christ, if there any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. So the exhortation in verse 5 to which Paul is leading his audience, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, is based on the grace which they had received because of the very demonstration of the humility and the submission of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul states in his introductory statements to this exhortation. This truth is indicated by this first word of this verse, which is if. And the conjunction if is not being used in the same manner as we are often accustomed to it being used, but it's what is referred to as an adverbial conditional conjunction. In their glossary of terminology, Heiser and Sederholm defined a conditional conjunction as following, a subordinating conjunction that introduces a condition that must occur or be met before another action or event can occur. So he's not, it's not just a hypothetical if, as we would consider it often, but rather this is stating a condition which must occur or be met before another condition or event can occur. So from Paul's use of the conditional conjunction if, we conclude... That Paul is stating that the statements to follow are a necessity within the lives of the readers if or in order for them to live with the mind of Christ. Or they must be living with the mind of Christ in order for these things to be a reality. What's more, when one lives with the mind of Christ, 
It will be his mind controlling our lives. It's his mind, which will most certainly result in a life which has been shaped by his mind, his sacrifice, and his Furthermore, Paul is emphasizing the importance of this responsibility held by the readers to live their lives according to God's grace as provided for them in Jesus Christ. Paul clearly stated this in, the other, in many other epistles. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, we read, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Do you see what Paul just said? The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is having the mind of Christ. And then he explains how this is exemplified. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Remember, Paul is referencing, of course, the reality that we are to live out the truth of the position we've been given in chapters 1 through 3 as defined by Paul of Ephesians. But then he goes on to say in verse 2 of Ephesians 4, with all lowliness and meekness with long-suffering for bearing one another in love. Who does that sound like? Of course, it sounds like Christ, doesn't it? This is the mind of Christ. Colossians 1, 9-11. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Who does that remind us of? Jesus. <laughs> this is the mind of Christ. Colossians 2. As ye, therefore have re- as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So now he's saying, as you receive Christ, walk in Christ. You cannot walk in Christ apart from having the mind of Christ. He is the one who is controlling, ruling, he is Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. When we read the statement, let them, this mind which was in Christ Jesus, let also this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, we must understand this is the mind that Paul was talking about. And he's saying, he's calling and exhorting these believers to walk worthy, to walk according. When we read worthy, now it, that can be misconstrued. Paul in no way is saying that we can walk in a manner in which we deserve such grace, then it's not grace. He's not saying, oh, you should live in a manner in which you, you, you deserve the mercy and love of God. Of course not. That is not at all what Paul is stating here. What Paul is stating is this. Our lives should be submitted to the truth of God, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in such or to such a degree that the lives that are being lived are according to the grace, according to the mercy, according to the love which we have received of God the Father. And that we walk according to this grace in such a manner that it is demonstrating lives that have received this grace. So that is the implication here that is being made. This grace to which Paul calls his readers' attention is detailed within this first verse. Notice what he says. 
Paul's exhortation was given on the basis that there is consolation in Christ. If there be any consolation in Christ. Not a hypothetical statement. He's saying, because you've received consolation in Christ, let this mind be in you. As one in whom, in whom the mind of Christ resides and, and controls, then this is what you've experienced. This consolation. So again, this is not a, a, a hypothetical statement being made. Oh, if... As, no, he's saying walk according to that which you have received and if the mind of Christ will be in you and you are submitted to his lordship, then this is going to be evident in your life if there be any consolation in Christ. And now consolation means encouragement and comfort. And Paul's use of the word consolation is that of encouragement in this text. If there be any encouragement in Christ is what Paul is saying. The fact that this word consolation means encouragement as it is used by Paul in this verse, is further realized by the statement which follows in this verse, because Paul then goes on to say, if there be any if any comfort of love. Not only was it redundant for Paul to make mention uh, this word comfort twice, but the comfort he speaks of is part of the encouragement that is in Jesus Christ. So if there be any encouragement in Christ, let me ask you something. Where does encouragement exist apart from Christ? And so if we've been encouraged in the Lord and in the person of Christ, then this mind of Christ should be demonstrated in our lives. He goes on to say, second, Paul's exhortation was given on the basis that there is comfort of God's love. He says, if any comfort of love. Now, within this statement, Paul is speaking of consolation or comfort. So Paul is calling the reader to live in the comfort of God's love as provided in Jesus Christ. So in the midst of suffering for the cause of Christ, remember what Paul had just said in chapter 1, verse 29. Just two verses prior, and this was a letter written to the church at Philippi. It was not divided into chapters. It was not divided into verses And so there would have been a continuity of thought between paragraphs, if you will, that may break up or introduce new thought. But when Paul, uh, when he stated in chapter 1, verse 29, that it is granted unto you, it is given unto you to suffer, to not only believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for his name's sake, it is given unto you to do that. Isn't it interesting that he would then go right into having this mind of Christ who set the entire example of suffering for us, who suffered on our behalf, and then say, oh, by the way, there's encouragement in Christ. Oh, you'll suffer for his name's sake, but there's encouragement. And by the way, there is comfort in his love. And so Paul is making these statements to this church uh, along these lines connected to the truth he's already stated about it being granted or given unto them to suffer for his name's sake. In the midst of suffering for the cause of Christ, there is comfort and this is that of which Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 1.5, he said, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation, our comfort, also aboundeth by Christ. God's love is in Christ, and therefore it stands to reason that the comfort of love is the comfort of God's love as provided in Jesus Christ. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. We must understand the root of Paul's exhortation in this statement. If this was going to be a reality, then it must first be true that these believers were living according 
looking to this grace of God is provided in Jesus Christ. If the mind of Christ is going to be in you, then you must be resting in the encouragement and in the comfort of Christ. And if you have the mind of Christ, then you are encouraged in Him. And you are comforted in Him. Third, Paul's exhortation was given on the basis that there is fellowship through God's Spirit. If any fellowship of the Spirit, Paul said. We are not only... Not only do we have fellowship with one another through the Spirit of God, but it is through the provision of God's Spirit, or the Spirit of Christ, that we have fellowship with God the Father. John wrote of this in his first epistle in 1 John 1.3 when he said, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So John is saying the fellowship within the church that does exist, because that's who he's writing to, beloved, He is saying that this fellowship which does exist is centered, rooted, and grounded in the fellowship that we have with God the Father, with the Lord Jesus Christ, with God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the fellowship that we have with one another is the product of the fellowship that we have with God the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. The fellowship in which we share is all provided by God the Father through Jesus, clearly, as Paul further explained in the instruction of his first epistle to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul stated, God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Interestingly enough, is it not that this is a letter of rebuke, 1 Corinthians, and when Paul is writing this to the church at Corinth, he is in the first chapter setting up the groundwork and basis for the entirety of the letter and all that he will state. And here he says... He goes on in chapter 3 to tell them how that they were spiritually mature, babes in Christ, that they could not eat meat. They were drinking milk. He could only give them that which was, was at a shallow level that they could understand because they were not rooted in, in, in the depths and truths of God's uh, provision for them in Jesus as they should be. And then in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, God is faithful by whom ye were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What a, what a, a tremendous statement made by Paul in this letter of rebuke that is confirmed in the second letter he wrote unto them. And here's the point. He's about to rip them to shreds (laughs) concerning their carnality, concerning the manner in which they are living their lives and allowing and condoning sin within the church. And he's going to go in and he's going to address this. He is going to just lay it all out. But notice his confidence. God is faithful and it is God who into this fellowship. It is God who will perfect this work he's done. And so Paul is saying, God's going to do this. It just behooves me to now lay all this out before you, but God's going to do this. He's going to be faithful to what he is determined to do. Fourth, Paul's exhortation was on the basis of a godly affection and compassion. He says, if, if any bowels and mercies. Now the noun bowels obviously is different than that which we would refer to today. It refers to affection. It's referring to inward parts. So in that sense, the bowels, in the sense of the gut, if you will, the innermost part of our being, that which, you know, you have that gut feeling. Well, he's talking about that inward affection that abides from, come, coming from within. And it's this, this, this most inner part. The noun mercies means compassion and pity. So Paul was not referring to their capacity to show or possess affection and compassion, but rather is referring to them as recipients of God's affection and compassion towards them. So here he's saying, but notice again when we get to chapter, or or get to verse 5 and following, in this hymn to Christ, 
you begin to realize that Paul is speaking of how Christ humbled himself, became a servant, even to the point of death, the death of the cross. And so he ex- exuded this, this compassion and this pity upon mankind, even upon the cross. And so, but here Paul is not talking about you showing mercy or you showing compassion. He's saying if you've received any mercy, if you've received any compassion of God, let this mind be in you, based upon these conditions, based upon these truths. So again, Paul's not, see what Paul's saying? He's not saying, okay, now do your best to just live your life like Jesus lived his life. Do what you can. He's saying, look, everything that is necessary follow in the steps of Jesus, even suffering, even suffering unto death. He says, has already been received by you through God's provision of Christ for you. So let this mind, he didn't say put this mind on. He didn't say begin to learn more of this mind so you can imitate it. No, let this mind, allow this Christ to dwell and Lord in your life. Submit unto his lordship. Allow his mind to control you. Allow him to rule in that sense through your submission unto him. And he says everything that's been necessary for this to be true has already been provided by God. So the basis for the Philippian believers living life according to the mind of Christ was that they had been made to receive encouragement in Christ. They had been given comfort in Christ. They have a fellowship that's in Christ and they've received the affection and compassion from God the Father through his provision of Jesus Christ. We who have been made recipients of such grace, and by the way, this encouragement, this comfort, this fellowship, this affection and compassion, this love of God, it's all part of the grace of God. It's all part of the goodness of God. So if we have received such grace, and we have, have we not? And if we have received such grace, then allow the grace giver to rule your heart and your mind. That this be demonstrated then through your life. And this is what Paul is getting to. He's not there yet, but he's leading us in that direction. We have been made recipients of such grace are privileged to live in the grace that has been granted to us. This is Paul's exhortation to the Philippian believers. Let this mind be in you. You've received the person of Christ, and you receive him as both Lord and Savior. You don't divide him up. He is who he is. I've said to you so often, you no more make Jesus Lord of your life than you make him creator of the world. He is who he is. But we are as believers now to acknowledge this lordship and submit to his lordship and everything that's been needed. Oh, it's been given to us to suffer. Well, that sounds pretty rough. And we know that all good things come from God and only good things come from God. That which he gives us is good as believers in Christ. But yet he's given it to us to suffer But understand, he's given us encouragement, comfort, fellowship, and love in Christ even in the midst of that suffering and even in preparation for that suffering. And we follow after Christ in suffering, identifying in his suffering. Let this mind be in you, 
What is the condition? Oh, you've received encouragement. You've received comfort. You've received fellowship. You've received affection and compassion or God's love in Christ. So now acknowledge His Lordship, allowing His mind to rule. Jesus is the head of the church. That's a corporate statement, is it not? He is is Lord of the church. He's Lord of the world. He is Lord of all creation. He's Lord of all that is. He rules and reigns supreme without question, and that will be realized in the end. All enemies shall be made his footstool. It's not that they have any power over him now. It's just he's not demonstrated his ultimate lordship over them at this moment, but it shall be. So he is head of his body, but that doesn't mean the church always acknowledges that he is head of the body. And he is Lord of your life, but that doesn't mean you are always acknowledging that he is Lord of your life. So when Paul gives this exhortation, let this mind be in you, which we've not even reached this portion of the text yet, but this exhortation to let this mind be in you is an exhortation and a charge to acknowledge, recognize, submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we will then obey, having received all that is needed for the mind to be in us. We think nothing of ourselves. We exist only to the purpose and fulfillment of the will of God the Father unto His glory. And then there's this beautiful consequence. We always think consequence is negative. It's not always negative. There's this beautiful consequence. Christ has been exalted. And in the end, we who know Him, in Him, we've received of Him, we have received Him. You know what God's going to do? He's going to exalt us in His Son because He's exalted His Son and we are in Him and He is in us. In other words, that's what Paul's referencing when he says, that we will share in His glory if we share in His sufferings. But he also referenced this eternal weight of glory that God is working despite the temporal circumstances, the temporal sufferings, the temporal persecutions, the temporal troubles, the temporal trials that exist. He says all that is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory, that which shall be. You know what? doing god is conforming us to the image of his son jesus christ which is an ongoing continual work that takes place through suffering that takes place as we acknowledge the lordship of christ this is all happening in us but hear me there is coming a day where this work will be completed and we will stand before him without blemish without spot unto his glory sharing in his glory because of this work of christ So why would we not desire that this mind be in us now? Why would we not desire to acknowledge His Lordship now? And to recognize His humility, His submissiveness, but then also the glory which is to come as God has glorified His Son. So He will also exalt us in His Son in the end when we are presented unto Him as a perfect bride all because of his faithfulness. As Paul said to the Corinthians, God is faithful who has called us into the fellowship of his son. And God will present us in a perfect, perfected way when this work is completed through time as we step into eternity. So let this mind 
be in you. You've received encouragement. You've received comfort. You've received God's compassion, His love. You've received all of this of Him, fellowship in His Spirit. Let this mind be in you.